0: Not often a team gets swept in the first round of the playoffs and its fan base is energized about what's to come. But that was where the Canucks found themselves in the spring of 2001. Their first playoff appearance in half a decade felt like the beginning of something bigger. The majority of the players were in their mid 20s and had plenty to prove. They wanted to establish themselves as quality NHLers, they wanted to be a part of a winner, and they wanted to play in front of a packed arena. For GM Brian Burke, it wasn't hard to convince the players that their responsibilities in Vancouver extended beyond the rink. We
1: became much more active in the community when I first got there than we'd ever been before. The Vancouver Canucks under the Griffiths family had always been active, but we doubled those efforts. We made it really fashionable to like the Canucks, to like the team. We gave them a team they could like and a team that was fun to watch, and we started selling out long before we started winning. Because you got those two factors. So someone sitting at home trying to decide whether to go or not, even though we were only in, say, third or fourth place, but, gee, they're fun to watch, and boy, do I like these guys. I'm going to buy a ticket. That's when we started to
0: sell out, not when we had results. Entertaining and endearing. It's an effective combination and was the recipe for reviving interest in Canucks hockey. But with the return of the fans came the return of expectations.
2: We put that team back on the map, man. Like, there were some bleak times there for a while. For that next
3: five or six years, he was the best power forward in the game. There was a confidence that we believed if we went out and played the way we were capable... We could score every shift. Now it's
1: kind of league-wide. I want to come see the West Coast Express, you know, see these guys in action. Deadline sold tickets. Deadline cared about the community. Deadline gave back. We knew that
4: we would never be satisfied unless we would win the
3: cup. Everything. The whole thing. It's like a bad nightmare happened. In a matter of seconds, I mean, lives basically changed forever.
0: Heading into the summer of 2001, there was a lot of uncertainty for Canucks captain Marcus Naslund. Coming off a 41-goal campaign and three straight years of leading the Canucks in scoring, Naslund had proven himself to be Vancouver's best player. In need of a contract extension, there wasn't much to quibble with when it came to rewarding him with a new deal. In late July, it was announced that Naslund had signed a three-year extension worth $15 million. But Naslin had broken his leg in mid-March and hadn't been part of the Canucks' return to the playoffs. And while everyone was optimistic about his health moving forward, Naslin himself wrestled with the natural doubts that accompany such an injury.
4: Obviously, going through a fairly significant injury like that, it's tough to know if you're going to come back and feel the same. And the Swedish soccer player, Henrik Larsson, played for a lot of the top European teams. He broke his leg, I think, a year prior, and I took him as someone that made it back and and played on the elite level after, so I knew that it was possible.
0: The Canucks would certainly need Naslin to do the same if they were going to improve on the previous season. Recovery aside, the captain had already established himself as a consistent performer, showing he could deliver on expectation. The majority of the questions were about what was reasonable to expect from the rest of the roster that now had pressure to perform. Both Todd Bertuzzi and Brendan Morrison were coming off career years with respect to scoring. Both had enjoyed modest bumps on their previous best seasons, and had established themselves as important offensive cogs in the Canucks operation under Mark Crawford. Daniel and Henrik Sedin were entering their sophomore seasons after decent rookie campaigns. Henrik Sedin's center and Daniel scores!
5: Daniel Sedin's first National Hockey League goal ties the game with 113 degrees.
0: Daniel had scored 20 goals as a freshman with half of those coming on the power play. Henrik hadn't been as successful statistically, but he'd played in all 86 games across the regular season and playoffs, a meaningful accomplishment given the physical demands of the NHL. With a year to adjust to the North American game under their belts, the Sedins were expected to be much more productive in year two. Where Vancouver needed greater improvement, however, was in its own end. The Canucks were in the league's bottom third when it came to goals allowed, And while their style meant they'd never be the league's stingiest team, they'd be hard-pressed to compete with true Stanley Cup contenders unless they got better defensively. That talking point got plenty of attention when the Canucks opened the season with three straight losses, conceding a combined 14 goals to their opponents. They bounced back with two straight wins against top teams, allowing just a single goal against Dallas before blanking the defending cup champs from Colorado. But in the late stages of that 4-0 shutout, Vancouver's Yarko Rutu need Colorado's Stefan Yell and sparked a near-line brawl. Avalanche tough guy Scott Parker grabbed Canucks defenseman Ed Jovanovski and started swinging. Seeing a perceived mismatch, Bertuzzi rushed to the aid of his teammate and engaged with Parker. One problem. Bertuzzi had left the bench to do so, which meant an automatic 10-game suspension for Vancouver's top-line winger.
1: There's no sense yelling at a player with good intentions. What he meant to do was well-intended. It was stupid, though. That's a black-and-white rule. Todd just thinking, Joe was in trouble. I got to go. So it wasn't hard to say the right things, which are, you can't do it again. You cannot ever do that again. But we respect the intent behind it. Berkey was awesome with me. He understood where I was coming from. I think... As a young team, when
2: you're coming together, I don't know, you you just build these relationships where you don't like any of your friends being taken advantage and all that. And I knew that I was at the wrong, but at the same time, I knew I was at the right, that I wouldn't do anything for my teammates.
5: Monday morning quarterback, right? I got it, Bird. I could take care of myself, you know, but that's what type of guy he is, right? And I think not understanding at the moment the consequences, you know, what was about to come down. You know, it's one of those situations that happened, there's nothing you can do about it.
2: And fortunately, I had to sit the 10, and the 10 sucked, man. Like, I wasn't just sitting around on the couch, I was being bag-skated every day, and you feel the pressure of you not being in the lineup, the anticipation of when you're coming back, so I had a lot to prove.
0: While Bertuzzi sat, the Canucks spun their collective wheels. Vancouver earned just a single point in the first four games of Bertuzzi's suspension before getting back in the win column against Nashville. But that victory proved costly as Andrew Castles, their first-line center, suffered a knee injury that would take six weeks to heal. Castles was tied with Morrison for the team lead in scoring at the time, but would spend the next 20 games in rehab instead of in uniform. Bertuzzi rejoined a team now four games below 500 and struggling to score. He provided an immediate spark upon his return, scoring a power play goal and then assisting on Morrison's game winner in Columbus. But the Canucks fell flat in their next two outings and were in need of something to rally around. Burke had just the thing, a deal he'd been trying to hammer out for months, if not years. One that would excite the fan base as much or more than the players in the dressing room. Burke and Washington GM George McPhee finally agreed on a trade involving a player that both of them had helped draft in Vancouver. And on November 10th, 2001, they announced that Trevor Linden was once again a Canuck.
1: When I asked about bringing him back, because he, he never looked right in a Montreal sweater or an Islander sweater or a Washington. He never looked right. And so I remember talking to George, and George was like, no. He said, I'll trade him, but it's got to be a first-round pick. And I'm like, you know, Trevor wasn't young at that point. So I was like, I'm not doing it. But Then our team got better, and you're thinking, okay, that pick's going to be 26th. 25th 27th not like 19 like it used to be or 10 like it used to be and all of a sudden you're saying well maybe we can't afford it and so i finally got to the point where george wouldn't budge on he said it's got to be a first and i said "Uh, okay i'll pay that price and brought him back
6: i felt really good about that trevor was born to be a vancouver canuck and it's where he played his best hockey he was at all times a a great pro you know i thought he was a good captain for that team I wanted to bring him to Washington and because he was, you know, a good player and a good captain. And he played real well for us that year in Washington in the playoffs. But when it was an opportunity for him to go home and Berkey was offering a first round pick, it was something that we had to do. You know, the first question was when I told him that we've made a trade, he said, where am I going? I said, you're going to Vancouver. He was delighted.
7: It was a surreal for me. It was very, very odd, but You know, I remember coming back and they were struggling early on, but I remember thinking about the incredible connection that this group of players had with this city, this fan base. And I think of why that was, and of course it was... Marcus and Todd and Brendan but there were other characters that really connected with the fans whether it be a Dan Cloutier or a Matt Cook or Matthias Oland or Eddie Jovanoski or Brent Sopel. I mean these guys were young and that coaching staff Jack Mack and Mark Crawford and Mike Johnson were excellent.
0: Lyndon was no longer young by hockey standards but he was already beloved by the fan base which lauded his return to the franchise. As for the coaching staff Crawford and Lyndon had been previously acquainted, so there was no need to break the ice.
7: You know, Mark really focused me on what he wanted from me, and it wasn't, hey, we need you to score. It was like, hey, we need you to be you. I was just trying to,
6: to say to him, you know, like, hey, this is a good group. You're really going to help them. Your leadership is going to help them. Your experience is going to help them. And, you know, I'd known Trevor uh, he was a player when I was still a player. When he came in, I was actually his first roommate at camp in Parksville. So I'd known Trevor for a long time and uh, talked to him periodically and, and whatnot. And I'd had him at the Olympics. So, you know, he played so well
0: for us in the Olympics. It just so happened that it was another Olympic year for the NHL, but Lyndon was no longer a player who would be considered. He was also no longer the Canucks captain, and had lived through an extremely awkward situation involving the captaincy four years earlier. Naslund had been there and seen it play out, and nobody was looking to revisit that kind of drama.
7: I leave. He's a guy that doesn't have a lot of confidence, unsure of himself, trying to find his way. I was the captain when he came. I leave and come back three years later and this guy is hes the boss. Like he's offensively confident. He's the captain of the team. He's the leader of the team. I remember the first day I got back, I went right to him and said, Marcus, I need to talk to you. I said, listen, I want you to know that this is your team. You're the captain. I don't want to be the captain. I have no interest in it. I want to support you. I want to be part of whatever you need from me. And I wanted that to be known because it was it was a strange situation, you know. So I wanted to make sure that we had that conversation very early. And he was a leader. He was a totally different person and player. I told
1: Marcus before he made the deal. And I told Trevor when I called him and told him, I said, look, I just brought you back. I didn't trade for a captain. I told Nazi, you're the captain. I told Trevor, Nazi's the captain, not you. And they understood that.
0: Naslin led by example in Linden's return, scoring a goal and adding an assist in a victory over Minnesota that kick-started a brief winning streak. The Canucks won three straight and picked up a tie before reverting to another run of mediocrity. Missing Castles was certainly a factor, but his absence alone didn't account for the unsatisfactory start to the season. Vancouver entered December four games below 500 and on the wrong side of the cut line for the playoffs.
4: I'm not sure. I I, I don't know. it. Sometimes it's tough to put a finger on things when you think that all the pieces should be in the right place and, and things should work out. Uh, but maybe we start playing tight because we've felt the pressure and the expectations of, especially ourselves, uh, taking another step and moving on. But again, it, it's difficult to analyze sometimes when you're in a, in a slump.
0: For his part, Naslin had continued to produce at nearly a point to game pace despite the team's struggles. Bertuzzi had been fairly quiet. It appeared as though he was still playing catch-up after his 10-game suspension. Surprisingly, Crawford hadn't simply elevated his second-line center to first-line duty with Castles out of the lineup. Morrison had been performing well and was trending toward another career year. The path of least resistance was to put him between Naslin and Bertuzzi. Instead, Crawford had opted for a more balanced offensive approach, according to Canucks play-by-play voice Jim Hewson.
8: I mean, you saw it happen during a game because Mark was notorious for that. He would put them together for a few shifts and get something out of them. But but the next game would start and there'd be Todd back with the Twins. There'd be Castles if he was healthy, back playing with Marcus. He wasn't sure what Brendan was. Brendan was playing on the third line, played with Trent Platt. He'd play with different guys. He'd play up and down the lineup. But he didn't, as I recall, often get a chance to play with the big boys. And I don't think they saw him at that point, as a number one setter, and he really had to prove himself.
0: And he probably wasn't quite sure what to make of the Sedins at the time either. Each appeared mired in the so-called sophomore slump. The Twins had produced an identical seven points apiece through the first 25 games of the season, and the criticism came quickly. Vocal media and fans questioned why the Sedins were granted so much power play time, pondered whether they were strong enough to compete, and openly wondered if they would ever become prominent players in the NHL. Fortunately, Daniel and Henrik had an ally and mentor in Naslund, who helped them tremendously during those challenging times.
3: It was so important for us to have him on the team early on, especially. Him coming from the same hometown and, and also him going through the tough times he had early on in, in his career. So I'm sure he didn't really want to... <laughs> have to deal with us too much, but we always knew that we could go to him and, and talk to him. So that was, that was so nice. That was, that was big. He let us figure things out ourselves, but any time if we had any questions or things we wonder about, like not only hockey-wise, but even living, living away from home and in a different country, knowing that you had someone that grew up in the same neighborhood as you did pretty much and went through the same things that we did, you can understand how much that meant to us.
0: And it wasn't just Nasland the Twins garnered support from a variety of their teammates who were quick to defend the young Swedes. Despite the team's disappointing results, it was becoming very evident just how close this group of players had become.
2: We'd go out to Vancouver, usually a month before the season starts, and usually you just roll into the city that you're playing in. And we ended up all skating together a lot more, hanging out a lot more, doing a lot more things together. And you can slowly see the chemistry and the excitement uh, within ourselves building. And we knew that we were closing in on being able to put a team, an exciting team out there that was able to compete on a night-to-night basis.
0: A good locker room is great, but pro sports is a results-oriented business, and the results simply weren't good enough.
5: At Toyota, our vehicles have always had quality and durability built right in. Because in winter, even our potholes have potholes. Quality means everything to us, because it means everything to you. Lease a 2023 RAV4 LE all-wheel drive from $99 weekly for 60 months at 7.19% APR with $2,800 down. Order yours today. Visit shoptoyota.ca or your Pacific Toyota dealer. It's time to Toyota.
0: Support for Unreal West Coast Express comes from New Balance. Hey, I'm an active guy, and New Balance has literally supported me for well over a decade. From distance running to trail running to walking my dog, I've always got New Balance on my feet. Lately, it's been all about the Fresh Foam X series for me. 1080s for the road, Heroes for the trail, and 880s for everything else. Support your feet and support local. Check out the lineup of Fresh Foam X athletic shoes today at your local New Balance store in Richmond, Delta, and Langley. The Canucks' record hadn't improved by mid December, but the team got a welcome bit of news as countries announced their rosters for the upcoming Olympics in Salt Lake City. To no one's surprise, Marcus Nasland and Matthias Oland were named to Team Sweden, while agitating forward Jarko Rutu was selected to represent Finland. But in Vancouver, none of them received more attention than Ed Jovanovski, who was chosen to play for Team Canada.
5: And you know, being named Olympic team, obviously, it was on plan. You know, I just have the opportunity to, to represent your country at that stage. And, you know, but I felt that, you know, my game was there. And yeah, having won that and then coming back, yeah, I thought the team was in a, in a, in a good position. We were definitely rolling at the right time.
9: I think Ed Jovanovsky making the Canadian Olympic team in 2002 was in a lot of ways, it was bigger than Trevor Linden making the initial NHL Olympic team for Canada in 1998 because Linden was a 30 goal scorer. He was regarded as one of the best two way wingers in the NHL. He still wasn't a superstar. Like a lot of guys are who are picked uh, for any Canadian Olympic team, but he's a very good player. And it wasn't a shock. It was a little bit surprising. I remember when Joe Vinovsky was picked just because that was his real first season as an elite NHL defenseman. That was his breakthrough year. But also the Canadian team was so stacked. When you look at the defense that Canada took to Salt Lake, you had four Norris Trophy winners in that defense, in Al McInnes, Chris Pronger, Scott Niedermeyer, and Rob Blake. And then you had Adam Foote and Eric Brewer and Ed Jovanovsky. And you kind of wondered, well, where's Jovanovsky going to fit? Like getting picked for the team is one thing. Is he actually going to outplay some of those guys and have a prominent role? And he did. I remember O two 2 team, we were down to two defensemen. And I turned to Pat and I said, Pat, you have to make the
6: decision. You're the coach If you get three guys in the penalty box and two guys hurt. Who's going to be the guy you can look down the bench and say, OK, I can have him out there in the last minute. And we ended up choosing Ed Jovanovsky and he turned out to be... That perfect guy for that team because he didn't play a lot. He was a seventh defenseman, but he was happy to be there. He gave us energy every time he got on the ice, and he, you could see the game change when he got on the ice.
0: An endorsement from Wayne Gretzky is a religious moment for a Canadian hockey player, but Jovanovsky earned it. He would end up playing in six of Canada's seven games and register three assists in helping his home and native land snap a 50 year gold medal drought in men's Olympic hockey. But those good times were two months away. Jovanovski and the Canucks weren't able to parlay his Olympic appointment into positive results and skidded into the Christmas break with three straight losses. Vancouver was seven games below 500, nine points out of a playoff spot, and the season was almost half over. Pressure was beginning to mount, and Burke decided to do something about it. Brendan Morrison remembers it vividly.
3: We came off the ice one day and told to you know, get in the locker room. Burke was coming down to address the team. like, oof, geez, what's happening here? You know, it doesn't happen that often.
1: I really felt we had to display some faith in the team. So I listed on the board eight or ten things, you know, winning face-offs, and on the other side, losing face-offs, 50-50 battles, and said, last year we had a good start, guys. Here's the ten things we did right. Now we're terrible. Here's the ten things we're not doing right.
3: And I remember sitting
1: there in stall
3: and the message Berkey gave us was this. He's like, guys, you know, everybody knows we haven't lived up to expectations this year and things haven't gone exactly the way we anticipated
1: and i said we got to fix this right now if we keep free falling here we're gonna be too far out of the playoffs to get back in it so we got to stop this free fall right now today so i said here's what i'm going to tell you in order for this to happen is i am not touching the roster on this team you could have heard a pin drop because the guy saw i going to say i'm making some trades i'm getting rid of some of you guys But he said listen just so you guys know we believe in you guys as a management
3: group. We believe in you as a coaching staff. And, you know, we've had several chances to move
1: some of you guys out of here. And we've put our faith in this group. I said, which makes me the dumbest, blankly blank in Western Canada, or the smartest. And we expect to start seeing results. Like right now, it's done. We can't keep
3: spinning our wheels here. We need to start winning. And if for some reason we don't do that,
1: you know, this isn't a threat. This is just reality then I'm going to have to look at maybe moving some guys out here. I said, no, I'm going to trade a couple guys that are in here because we had some ice time issues. Like Drake Barahowski wasn't playing. I had promised him I'd move him. I said, aside from guys who have ice time issues, I'm not touching the roster. I said, I believe in this group.
2: He was trying to give us a confidence that he believed in us, that he wasn't going to make changes, that we're all here and we either figure it out or he'll wait down the line and make some drastic decisions. And I don't think any of us were ready for that. None of us really wanted to go anywhere else. We knew that we had something building. And I think just a strong message, not a threatening message, but a strong message that he still believed in us, that we can do this, catapulted us going further.
0: A lot of GMs keep a healthy distance from the players they manage. They don't want to get too close to the people they might have to part ways with. But Burke was the opposite, and players like Bertuzzi welcomed his approach.
2: I love Berkey. Berkey is another reason for my success, too. He's an Irishman. He comes across as this big grizzly bear. But I had, I don't know, I had this chemistry with him where it was easy to talk to. And back when I first started, you don't don't talk to GMs. You don't have discussions and all that. You just go out and you play. You don't get the black and white answer. You get the gray. With Berkey, it was straight right to the truth. And he told you what he thought, how he felt but he made you feel part of a family and part of a team where we discussed things with our team and all that. And he made us feel important.
1: I think you can ask more of people in combat situations if you have their trust. And again, I don't mean to belittle the military, Nothing we do is remotely close to combat, but we use the analogies, we use the comparisons all the time. And again, no disrespect to the military, but if you want to get that camaraderie of going into war with your team, the closer you can get, the better. I've been close to my teams on every team I've ever had. I think it helps you win.
0: And that's exactly what the Canucks began to do. Burke's speech seemed to have struck a chord with the team and the wins began to follow. Vancouver won 4 of 5 games coming out of the Christmas break before a narrow loss in Buffalo. Still, the Canucks had won 4 of 6 as they moved on to Motown to face the Red Wings. It hardly seemed like the time for a change-up in the lineup. But when the Canucks took the ice at Joe Lewis Arena that evening, Morrison was skating between Naslin and Bertuzzi on Vancouver's top line.
3: We came to the rink and, you know, they put the lineup up on the board in the morning for the pre-game skate and yeah, my name was in between those guys and, and I thought, shit, I mean, uh, You know, it was an opportunity to prove or show that, one, that, you know, I I could play with these guys. You know, I think I had a pretty good advocate in my corner there with my college coach, Red Berenson. You know, he would come down to the rink and and, and always talk to the opposing coaches. And, you know, I think he put a bug in Crow's ear that Brendan's always played with high-end guys his whole life, and he's been successful his whole life as far as putting up good offensive numbers. So, you know, I don't know if if that maybe influenced Pro as well in his decision making but regardless i mean i got the opportunity and was thrilled to be able to play with those guys
0: it didn't take long for the move to look good less than six minutes into the game the trio combined for the game's opening goal naslin's 20th of the season they'd strike again before the period was through this time bertuzzi the finisher in staking the canucks to a three nothing lead luke robitaille and castles would trade goals in the second period as vancouver maintained its margin through 40 minutes But Detroit's Hall of Fame-laden lineup would erase that deficit in the third and go on to beat the Canucks 5-4 in overtime. A disappointing ending after an otherwise impressive showing against the league's top team. The Canucks returned home to Vancouver, but Castles didn't return to his spot on the Canucks' top line. The automatic
3: assumption was that he was going to be put right back in there, and when that didn't happen, it was like, man, okay, you know, you had a pretty good showing and things went pretty well when you played with these guys. Now you have to do it consistently night in and night out in order to kind of stay there. So that was the challenge, and it seemed to work.
0: The Canucks exploded for 12 goals in lopsided wins over Carolina and Pittsburgh, and the floodgates were open. The Canucks kept filling the net and stacking wins, amassing 49 goals and 8 victories over a 10-game stretch that started with that loss in Detroit. Naslin, Bertuzzi, and Morrison posted a combined 45 points during that 10-game surge, and there was no turning back.
6: I wish I could say something brilliant, but no, I think it was just, you know, we felt that they were our two top guys. And when Brendan came along, you know, he was a guy that was a pass-first guy. And we felt that that pass-first mentality was what those guys need. I'm a long time friend of dick duff who's an old toronto maple leaf montreal canadian won six cups and he always used to talk to me about john bellivo and how john bellivo was such a great passer you know and he was uh, a guy that just set up wingers left and right all the time he always felt that the center's job was to get the puck to the scorers on the wings and that's a a lot of old-time thinking but that always stuck with me And when we were trying to match up people for Todd and for Marcus, when we got Brendan, that really was uh, one of the ideas. We could say, okay, we could put him on, and he is a, a guy that thinks past first, and that really should help them,
8: and it did. We saw flashes of it, the occasional game. I don't remember ever a full game, but the occasional period and certainly several shifts where those three would be together. And I remember asking Mark about it, and he would Come up with the same answer all the time, that he just, he wanted to spread things out. He didn't necessarily want those guys together all the time. But then they forced his hand. They were just too good. They just finally started filling the net. And I guess you could probably look at that too as the time when the Sedins were starting to take a step forward. They were starting to become better players and he didn't have to hide them or insulate them as much as he had in the past because they were figuring the NHL game out. And so he felt confident enough that they could be good second-line players,
3: and he could put this trio together as his top line. It's hard to explain sometimes when you play with certain guys, and it just fits. It just works. I mean, there's some guys that you can put down on paper and be like, man, these guys have to fit seamlessly together, and you get them out there on the ice. And for whatever reason, they just don't think the game similarly, and things don't work. But we all seem to think the game similarly. We just had this intuition that just gelled. Lo and behold, the West Coast Express was born, and there were good times ahead. And it was really a fun time, too, an exciting time, and the building was packed because the fans came back after the Messier disaster, and they came back full bowl, and that team became very, very popular.
0: Color commentator Tom Larshide captured the fervor of the market perfectly. Fans were swept up not only by the run of results, but by the manner in which they were being generated and the personas of the players. By the end of January, the Canucks were above 500 on the season and had made up their deficit in the standings and then some. Though they cooled slightly in early February, the Canucks went into the Olympic break in possession of a playoff position. Jovanovski returned with a gold medal, Naslund, Oland, and Rutu with Olympic experience, and the Canucks to their pursuit of the postseason. It was fair to wonder what effect the two-week pause would have on the Canucks and the newly christened West Coast Express. As it turned out, they got better. Vancouver continued to win and its top line continued to score at a higher rate than anyone had expected. Naslin had already established himself as an all-star, but this combination was unlocking a part of his offensive game that had been somewhat suppressed.
4: We found each other easily on the ice, just like we did obviously with Andrew too. Andrew was was a big part of our line, but Brandon brought speed and I mean, he, he'd be the first one back helping out the D and then he'll be up in the offense with us just as fast, so
2: he did a lot of the dirty work for our line. Obviously with Mo being a lot younger, he was a lot quicker. He can get into these holes where Andrew would, would be able to pass into those holes, but Mo can skate into those holes. And the, the one benefit that we had is we were basically out there to outscore whoever we were playing, but Mo brought that stability defensively. He played the 200 foot game before the 200 foot game became what it is now. And without him being able to do that, I don't know if we would have been as successful, but he brought a speed element and a no huddle offense to our offense. Speaking in football terms, that, that when you see a team who's down and they go no huddle, they're just go, 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 go. And Mo brought that kind of speed. Andrew Castles was a guy I always looked up to, too. Like, I admired how
3: he played the game. Not a big guy out there, but, you know, the way he could see the ice and his passing ability, you know, he was a guy who I learned a lot from. So I think I was similar to Cast in that sense as far as passing and being creative. But, you know, I think brought a little more as far as speed – Cass and I were very similar, but a little bit different. So it wasn't a huge adjustment for Bert and I don't think to have the goal from playing with Castles to me. So I think that definitely helped. I think if we were two completely different players, I don't know if the transition would have been as seamless, but we just seemed to click right away.
0: Morrison had dramatically increased the ability for Naslin and Bertuzzi to score off the rush. But without question, it was Bertuzzi's growth as a player down the stretch that vaulted the trio into elite status. Opponents were simply unable to defend a player of his size and ability, especially when he had a head of steam. When you have the
5: speed and you have the size and you have the hands to go along with it and not being afraid to be a creative type player, when you look at Todd's game, he kind of did some crazy shit out there. You know, he would do things, he would try that between the legs, play in front of the net. He would be coming in really kind of lowering that shoulder and knocking a guy with his strength going to the net. But I think once you recognize your ability to make plays and say, listen, I can dominate this league, that's what I saw in Todd. Because once he got to that level, you can see the fear in players playing against this guy.
0: In the Canucks' final 24 games of that season, Bertuzzi scored 19 goals and registered 40 points, both totals not far off his career marks for an entire season. Crawford was witnessing Bertuzzi's transformation into the rare player every coach covets a dominant power forward, and Bertuzzi had but one request of his bench boss.
2: I was like, just play me, and I will deliver. I don't need to have conversations. I don't need to have a relationship. I don't need any of that. I just need the opportunity to go play. And I think that he was able to identify with that, where I will give him a and saying that he kind of left me alone. He let me go play, let me go do my things, and he gave me the opportunity to play a a big role with that team. And from the power play to five on five to double shifting, playing 25 minutes a game, that's what I uh, always, not asked for, but that's what I always wanted. And I knew if I was given an opportunity like that, that I would be successful. And it's hard because you hear these guys, they're like, just give me an opportunity and all that. And it's true though, man, you don't know how good someone can really be unless the person's given a real opportunity to be successful and see what he can deliver too many times everyone's got a quick trigger and not giving some of these high-end players an opportunity. And, and I also understand you have to go out and earn your opportunity and you got to earn it. I was able to do that at the same time. I
6: think more than anything, I learned play him a lot because it did two things. If Todd knew he was playing a lot and I would tell him, I would say, "Hey, we're going to use you on two lines this period or whatever, then he would keep his, his shift short. And sometimes Todd liked to, if he didn't get something done early in his shift, he wanted to stay out there a little longer, so he got something done later in his shift. I learned that. I learned that you want to play him as much as you can and that he could handle it. That was the other thing that I learned. Uh, you know, certain guys, you needed to be worried about wearing them out and playing them too much. Todd was such a horse. At that time, you could play him and play him and play him, and he responded really well.
1: You can't forget what Todd Bertuzzi brings to a line. He brought a fearful element to the line. Like, he would steamroll people. Like, if the game got static and people weren't getting things done, Todd would run people over. Every once in a while, he'd get frustrated, and he'd just blow someone up. And that made people think hard about it. You're like, well, Nazi's not going to hit me like that. Brendan's not going to hit me like that. But Bert's going to kill me if he gets a chance. So that unpredictability was important to us.
6: You know, it's amazing that year that he had... What he did finished, I think, third in the scoring without playing 10 games. Man, if he'd have played those 10 games, he probably would have been the Hart Trophy winner that year. It was quite a close battle as it was, but there was no doubt in my mind, Todd was the best player in the league that year.
0: Bertuzzi finished the season with 36 goals and 85 points in just 72 games, as Crawford mentioned. Naslin's 90 points placed him second in league scoring behind Calgary's Jerome Ginla, and he scored 40 goals for the second time in as many seasons. Morrison eclipsed the 20-goal mark for the first time in his career and collected 67 points overall. All told, the West Coast Express combined for 143 points in the 37 games after Crawford assembled the line, an average of nearly four points per game. More importantly, the Canucks won 24 of those contests and picked up points in 30 of them. And they did it with an offensive flair and style that very few teams played with at the time.
4: Anytime you're playing great hockey, it's almost effortless because you're, you're in the groove and it's not if you're going to win, it's how you're going to win. It's a good feeling playing on a confident team that has that talent and, and we had that.
7: That was such a fun year. We went on a, an amazing role kind of through Christmas into the new year to get in the playoffs. And that role, I mean, make no mistake, I mentioned those other guys, but the guys driving the bus Every single night was Todd and Marcus and Brendan. They were incredible and it was fun. It was fun to watch as a player and you could just see the connection of the fans and how much fun it was to watch these guys and to watch our team. And for me, it was just so cool to be back. I left in such a horrific time. And then to come back and have this this magic, people were genuinely jacked about watching Canucks hockey.
8: The players that had been brought in basically to sell tickets were gone, but they found that they had in their organization others who could step up and do that. That Marcus was an exciting player. That Todd was becoming the most powerful winger in the game. There was no end to the excitement that Ed Jovanovsky brought to the team on a nightly basis. He was just really a dynamic player.
9: And they had Matias. I think the other thing we need to remember about 0102 is just how good the Canucks' defense was. It was a team on the rise and had been for a couple of years. But they also had Matthias Oland on that defense. They had Murray Barron, who was this veteran warrior, a really tough guy to play towards the bottom of the lineup. They'd acquired Jason Strudwick, another tough guy. They had Brent Sopel, who bounced around a lot, but was a really effective offensive defenseman.
0: McIntyre makes an important point about how the Canucks had evolved. While Vancouver's league-leading offense understandably made the highlights and grabbed the headlines, its defense was significantly better than it had been in recent years. As a team, the Canucks scored 16 more goals than they had the previous season, but they allowed 27 fewer, giving them the league's third-best goal differential at plus 43. Our defense
6: was really becoming awesome. You know, Jovo was really into his own by that point. Matias Olin was such a great defender. You know, he could play him against a guy with speed. You could play against a, a guy with power, no matter if they were the top guys on the other team. And again, I just think you kept going on down the list of the people. The depth of our team really started to show ourselves. We were exiting our zone, if you use today's terms. You know, our... Puck retrievals, our exits were just extraordinary, and that had a lot to do with guys that could move the puck. And Brent Sobel was that type of guy. Olin was that type of guy. We started overwhelming teams because we had depth at the forward position, and we just wore teams out, and we had it on the defensive side of of things, too. We didn't have to worry about one matchup. We could put three defense pairs out there that we were going to survive, even
0: if one defense pair was having a tough night. The goaltending had improved as well. While Felix Potvin had found a better fit with the Kings and was enjoying a renaissance of sorts in L.A., Dan Kluche had earned the trust of his coaching staff and teammates in Vancouver. He started a career-high 61 games that season, and his seven shutouts were second only to Patrick Waugh's nine. Kluche's 31st win of the year came in Game 81 against Potvin and the Kings. As for the second straight season, the Canucks clinched a playoff spot by beating their former goaltender at GM Place. Despite their incredible second-half surge, the Canucks ended up as the eighth seed in a crowded Western Conference where only five points separated second place from eighth.
2: We were rolling at the time. It's so weird seeing that we were an eighth-seed team and we were playing that well in the second half. It just shows how shitty we were in the first half. But no, we, we had the confidence. We knew that we could be that team who could upset some of the top teams and make a serious run.
0: Such a run would begin in the city where it all began for the West Coast Express. Detroit, With 15 more points than the next closest team, the Red Wings were clearly the NHL's best during the regular season, and it was easy to see why. That Red Wings roster included nine players who are now in the Hockey Hall of Fame, a number that will grow to 10 once Pavel Datsuk retires. Steve Yzerman, Nick Lidstrom, Sergei Fedorov, Brendan Shanahan, and Igor Larionov had all won two cups with the Wings in the late 90s. Detroit had since added Brett Hall, Luke Robitaille, Chris Chelios, and Dominic Hasek to its arsenal. Intimidating doesn't quite do Detroit's lineup justice. But to a man, the Canucks insist they welcomed the matchup.
3: We knew what Detroit was all about. We knew that their roster was loaded with Hall of Fame guys. But we weren't intimidated. Like We were actually looking forward to playing them because we thought we could beat them.
0: The series opened at Joe Louis Arena where the Wings had lost just eight times in 41 games during the season. Detroit took three separate leads on goals from future Hall of Famers, but each and every time, the Canucks answered back. Naslin, Morrison, and Bertuzzi were held off the score sheet, but Vancouver's depth responded, and Trevor Linden's third-period equalizer sent the game to overtime. The Red Wings poured it on in the extra session, but Kluche held his ground long enough for the Canucks to find the winner. Here's Henrik Sedin. Warner drives to the net. Daniel also... The Canucks had stunned the Stanley Cup favorites in their rink on the opening night of the playoffs without anything from their top line. Everyone knew Detroit would be ready for Game 2, but so would the West Coast Express. Now the Canucks are away! Bertuzzi back pass, now it's a 3-on-2, Morrison, Naslin, Richard Stars. What a goal! Marcus Naslin!
3: Getting that first win in Detroit was huge. I mean, it gave us even more confidence going into Game 2. And in Game 2, we beat them handily. I think the score ended up being 5-2. And I remember, the funny thing about that game is I remember lining up against Iserman. I don't know, there was probably two or three minutes left in the game, and we lined up at centre for a faceoff. And he looks at me before the puck drops, and he's got a big kind of smirk on his face and says, We got you guys exactly where we want you. (laughs) And I'm thinking, well, we got you exactly where we want you. You know, we're we're up two and us and going home.
0: As the series shifted to Vancouver for Game 3, all of the pressure was on the wings. The Canucks hadn't lost a game in nearly four weeks, and they looked every bit the part of the giant killer. In front of a Canucks-crazed crowd, Iserman gave Detroit an early lead on the power play. The Canucks countered with a man advantage marker of their own in the second with Bertuzzi on the business end of a set play off a faceoff. As the second period began to wind to a close, everyone could sense the same thing. The Canucks were perhaps one goal away from a stranglehold on the series. In game
6: three, we got off to such a great start again. Like, we had just about all the answers that we needed. And uh, unfortunately, we had a little bit of rough luck. Helios <laughs> and Lichterman in the final minute. It's a tough,
4: tough goal to let in at any point of the season, but especially at that stage and, and at that point in the series as well. But Dan was both well-respected and well-liked by his teammates, so we obviously stood behind him and wanted to come up big for him and get him the goals.
0: But there were no more to come from Vancouver on that night. Detroit went on to a 3-1 win and suddenly had life in the series. Vancouver fought hard to defend home ice in Game 4, but Eiserman scored the game winner in the third as the Wings headed back to the Motor City with momentum. Brian Burke could see his team was reeling. Their 2-0 series lead had evaporated and the reality of a missed opportunity was setting in. So he decided to hold a press conference prior to Game 5. I
1: want to point out to the officials that Todd Bertuzzi does not play for Detroit. It just looks like that because he's wearing two or three red sweaters all the time. Uh, I didn't know that tackling was an acceptable tactic. I didn't see it in our rule book. Sadeen so is not English for punch me or headlock me in a scrum. Our goaltender can be identified by the large pads and the, the mask that he wears. Uh, he's also the goaltender on the ice that does not dive when he gets brushed. We went up to nothing in the series and we were getting screwed by the officials even though we we're up to nothing. We we're down at least two calls a night and I told the players before the playoffs began I said look well, it's not because the league is going to screw us or the league is going to help the Detroit Red Wings. It's that they're an elite team, and someday soon we're going to be an elite team, and we will get that extra call every night. But right now we don't. We're going to have to kill an extra penalty every night. So you got all these stars on the team, Lidstrom. You got star after star after star, We're going to have to kill off one penalty a night, at least one, sometimes two. We're going to come up short. So we're up to nothing. And Mr. McCoss said, I'd like you to rip the officials. I said, I'm not touching this. We're, we're off to a great start. Then Dan, Danny Colucci also goal on Lidstrom. And Ron McClain went on there and said, what are you guys going to do? Like, it's full panic. I'm like, what do you, what do you mean, what are we going to do? And then it was full panic. So I felt well, we had to do something to get this off the players, get them, the attention off them and onto me and to the officials. So that's the intention.
0: And it worked, at least as far as officiating was concerned. After Detroit opened the scoring with a power play goal, the officials called three straight Red Wings penalties, giving the Canucks ample opportunity to tie things up and perhaps take the lead. Not only did Vancouver fail to capitalize, but Detroit scored shorthanded en route to a 4-0 rout in Game 5. Game 6 was more of the same, as Red Wings special teams were the difference in a 6-4 dismantling of the Canucks. Detroit was off to the second round and eventually the Stanley Cup, while Vancouver was left to wonder what might have been.
3: Every hockey fan will never forget Lidstrom firing a puck this side of center ice, and it goes in and beats Cloutier, and that was the turnaround. Right there, it was almost
9: like game over, series over, they're done.
3: You win as a team, you lose as a team. I mean, we didn't lose that series because of Dan Cloutier. We lost as a
2: team, and after we got beat, we didn't respond well enough as a team. Yeah, it still to this day drives me nuts. As hard as we took it, I know, and I know him so well. He's been one of my good friends. I got so much respect for him and his family that to put the onus on that one situation, it's ridiculous. There's many opportunities for a lot of us to come through. I should have been a lot better. And I don't think that we did the best job that we could have done. So to blame one person is, is absolutely ridiculous. He was a lot of the reasons why we got into the playoffs, too. People forget.
7: Dan has a, been a friend for a long time and is such a good, good human. And the fact that fans remember him for that is unfortunate because he's such a great competitor and a great teammate. And, you know, that's sport is that's why we watch, because you just never know what's going to happen. And crazy stuff happens. And that was one of them.
6: Probably a little lack of maturity and Steve Iserman. You know, I think you look at how Steve Eiserman played the rest of that series. Ooh boy, that's as good as I've seen one guy try and carry a team. Like he was the difference in that series. You think about the goals that he scored. I mean, there were effort, second effort, third effort type goals. Not only was it him scoring a big goal, but it was him scoring a big goal and igniting a Red Wing team that needed igniting.
0: The Red Wings had ignited something in the Canucks as well. It was a tough way to learn a lesson, but many a future champion has harnessed that knowledge and grown from it. And while it was Iserman who had conducted a masterclass in leadership, it was the grind line of Chris Draper, Kirk Maltby, and Darren McCarty that had provided the West Coast Express with a postseason education.
2: If you have a line that goes out there and just strictly is out there just to check you, to get in your face, it's not easy. It was an eye-opener for us and our line that if we were going to go any further, that we were going to have to be able to deal with this and come out on the high end of playing against teams and lines like that who are just to make life miserable.
0: Bertuzzi and his line mates were now known commodities across the NHL, and they were about to receive far more attention than any shutdown line could provide. Coming up on the next episode of Unreal West Coast Express. That
3: was right in the middle of the dead puck era. And that team played sexy hockey. It was entertaining.
9: It was fun. When you look at teams trying to corral these guys, like they just couldn't. They played a style that was not familiar to other teams. You can go back and anyone can go
2: back and watch highlights and all that. Just the passing, the globetrotting, the different kind of plays that we set up that worked. It was just like everything that could go right went right. As an
3: offensive player... When you're in that situation where you feel like you can score every time you step on the ice, I mean, that's a pretty incredible place to be. And and that's how we felt. And the
4: problem is you can't get ahead of yourself. And going into a game seven, that's always a, a
1: dangerous situation. That was a bitterly disappointing last. I still have nightmares about that.
0: Unreal West Coast Express is a production of Toolkit Content in collaboration with GoGoat Sports. Audio production is by Andre Deacon. Writing and narration is by me, Scott Rentoul. Podcast supervision comes from Aaron Johnson. NHL game audio courtesy of the National Hockey League. Special thanks to the following NHL personnel: Hannah Reednauer, Matthew Manicker, Teresa Wiltshire, and Nick Martinez.